Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Spot on. I will tell you, Brian, I just in looking back, I have done many a difficult project, whether it's a massive transformation or responding to a cyber incident. And I will tell you, I do remember those individuals who were in the foxhole with us. And it carries its weight. I have respect for them because they didn't just sort of sit from the other side of the table to give me, you know, something from afar, but rather they were in there next to me. We all had our sleeves rolled up trying to figure out how to solve the problem and ultimately get across the finish line. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And I'm coming to you from a warm, cozy home studio, but it's getting cold outside. And I have to be honest, I absolutely love this time of year. My family celebrates Christmas and we have our Christmas tree up already. And and I do have to admit this, it was up before Thanksgiving because we traveled and just wanted to have it up when we got back. But I really love this time before Christmas actually happens when you can just enjoy the season itself and just enjoy all the fun that comes with it, especially with the kids. But as we enter into December, I am especially excited. I get to bring you guys an early holiday present because my guest today is amazing. You're gonna love hearing from her. She serves as the Department of Justice Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Information Resource Management and is the CIO. And before that, she served as the DOJ's Deputy CIO in CISO. She has extensive experience in the financial services sector and prior to joining DOJ was Equifax's Assistant Vice President for fraud prevention and identity verification solutions. I'm talking about none other than Melinda Rogers, and it's such an honor to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. No, this is great. I'm looking forward to it. Let me Before we jump into some of these uh, more serious questions, what does the holidays usually look like for you, Melinda? Do you guys have any traditions or anything you guys do, anything fun? Um, well, gosh, speaking of Christmas lights, I have mine up too, and they went up before the Thanksgiving holiday as it. well. We did I love it. Travel, 
but I love um, lights of any kind, celebratory. It just cheers me up. So I went straight from the Halloween lights right into the Christmas lights. No breaks there. And that, uh, I'm that's enjoying amazing. Every evening, but thank you for asking. <laughs> no, we go on Christmas light walks, and my kids love it. One of the reasons why we had our trees up early too was my 19 year old or 19 month old gets into everything. So we're trying to slow roll him into the tree, and then we're going to put ornaments on it uh, this weekend. So we should, we're trying to mit mitigate any broken ornaments that we're going to have this year because he gets into everything. Oh. That's sweet. That's very sweet. I, I miss that time period. My boys are uh, 16 now, so I do miss it when I still think back fondly of when they were little toddlers, little babies. Ah. Well, that, that's a good segue into my first question, because you've obviously done your service as a parent. But I'm curious to know what brought you and has kept you in public service. I mentioned in the opening before you, you joined Department of Justice, you were over at Equifax, um, but what kind of brought you into the DOJ and what's kept you there? Yeah, Brian, I uh, wish I had a more noble answer, something like I came from a long line of civil servants or that some history class back in high school inspired me to pursue a federal career. Uh, but the truth is it was the basic necessities of life that led me to a position in the federal government, which actually blessedly turned into a series of amazing career opportunities, which I'm very grateful. It was the need and the ability to have work-life balance that brought me into federal service. Um, this is going back to when my boys were little, I had um, just taken a few years off to be a stay-at-home mom with my twins. I needed to get back to work and earn my own paycheck. And with my boys still little, they were about two and a half at the time, it was important for me to find something that allowed me to come home in the evenings and put them to bed at night. Um, before uh, having my twins, I was, when I was in private industry, I did a lot of consultative selling, business development, product management with different clients all over the country. Uh, while I loved being on the go and meeting with clients in person, I couldn't do that anymore with my two little ones at home. Um, honestly, I thought I was getting myself into a nice nine to five job and boy, Brian, was I <laughs> wrong about that. I've never worked harder in my life and I continue to work extremely hard, but I love every minute of it. Um, when I first joined, I uh, was responsible for overseeing FISMA. I had to look up what it stood for, the Federal Information Security Management and then turn into Modernization Act. Had to start from the ground up, did my requisite reading and learning of all things NIST. Um, as you know, it's National Institute of Standards and Technology, read up on the federal information processing standards, read up on all the special pubs that relate to the job, and um, really started from the ground up from there. And right away, I was so impressed with the people I was surrounded with, and everyone was smart and dedicated to the mission, and it uh, just inspired me to work hard and, and try to keep up with the rest of them. And uh, ultimately, what kept me in public service is the actual body of work um, beyond the mission of law enforcement. Uh, the programs and taskings we take on as OCIO from cybersecurity to service delivery, IT resiliency, to customer management, um, maximizing their experiences, to modernizing initiatives, to governance, to responding to congressional inquiries. Um, they are wide ranging and touch on just about all functions, IT budget, financial management, human resources, acquisitions, 
and the law, what we're permitted to do, what we're required to do, not just because we're the Department of Justice, but because we are uh, a federal entity governed by the law of the land. So it's just been amazing. It's fast-paced, dynamic, complex, and incredibly challenging. Never a dull moment, but I feel super blessed to be where I'm at, taking on these projects that are intricate, complicated, and then ultimately being able to solve for them with the incredibly talented people at uh, Justice. Well, first of all, if if you guys were listening intently, one of the things you mentioned in there was that you had twins. So I couldn't have been more right on you doing your service as a parent. Um, and it's such an interesting dichotomy, right? As your kids get older, my, my wife, she's actually in, in the process of taking some time off. Um, she is a stay-at-home mom with our kids, but I know she's kind of itching to go back. And you have that that itch to want to kind of get back into your career and, and feel that productive nature because it's a, it's a piece of you, right? That um, kind yeah. of sits on the shelf for a period of time that you're able to kind of get back in. What and one of the things you mentioned before you kind of left a role around around business development, right? And you were traveling all around, and now you're sitting in the CIO role. Before I, before I ask you my next question, I'm actually curious. A lot of the yeah. leaders that I bring on, I try to get them to offer some advice to the private sector and how to engage um, the public sector, especially folks like yourself and people on your team. You are fortunate enough to have worn both hats or in currently wearing one hat one of those hats what advice would you give to private sector folks that are are trying to engage public sector in a in a meaningful way right to really drive help drive yeah. results yes um i uh, actually i don't envy the private industry folks that call on federal service it is incredibly challenging our time and resources are often spread very thin so to catch our attention is incredibly difficult. So I just wanna thank the vendor community for trying to reach out to, to try to get our attention. It's not always easy, but if I could give um, a piece of uh, uh, counsel or two, it would be really to know your customer. And I did that in my old business development role back in private industry. You need to know who your customers are beyond just the name, beyond knowing just we are the Department of Justice, they should spend a minute on our website, trying to understand our organization, trying to understand our um, structure, understand the missions, look up any strategic plans that might be made available on the website to try to get to know us as an entity, as an organization. And then I would say the next step is actually incredibly important, which is figuring out where the vendor solution could potentially fit into our organization. Now, you could say that, how would they know? They're not in our organization, but I hopefully through the research and through critical thinking and knowing what your solutions or your toolkit might be best at, figure out what that pitch potentially might be to get your government person's attention in terms of, this is what I'm selling. I see this is what you're doing. I believe we can help you solve for this. And being able to present that possible equation, I think, is going to be very meaningful in getting uh, your foot in the door. And I would say, especially for the vendors that already exist in an organization, make sure you do your homework to understand what footprint you already have with this customer before you try to upsell and sell more. You need to understand what you have, what's going well, what's not working well, so that you're prepared to have a meaningful conversation uh, with your government counterpart. All great so advice. That's my two cents, 
Yeah, it's all great advice. And yep. it, it seems it seems so simple. You could kind of uh narrow it down into do your homework, right? Do your homework before you're you're approaching folks like yourself and others. Make sure you make sure you understand what their challenges are. I like to use the the foxhole uh analogy. Um, and I'm I'm stealing it from uh, a buddy of mine, Paul Puckett, who was formerly in the army and now is back in private sector. But but be willing to jump in the foxhole with with that person, yeah. with that organization and understand what their mission is and help them accomplish their mission. Your your job isn't just to sell them software, hardware, whatever it is. Your job is to get to uh, mission critical results. And that's what keeps folks like you up at night. That should be what keeps uh, the yes. vendor community at night. Spot on. I will tell you, Brian, I just in looking back, I have done many a um, difficult project, whether it's a massive transformation or responding to a cyber incident. And I will tell you, I do remember those individuals who were in the foxhole with us. And um, it uh, carries its weight. I have respect for them because they didn't just sort of sit from the other side of the table to give me, you know, something from afar, but rather they were in there next to me. We all had our sleeves rolled up trying to figure out how to solve the problem and ultimately get across the finish line. So uh, spot on. I love that foxhole analogy. Um, yes. What you said. So, so I mentioned things that keep you up at night. I'm curious to know throughout your career, what have been some of the biggest challenges you faced? And I, I have a lot of leaders on here and a lot of the things that they'll talk about aren't even tech related. So don't even feel you have to bring tech into it, but what are some of those challenges that, that you faced as you've advanced in your career? Um, sure. I think uh, I would say two things. First one is uh, for me personally, it's accepting my own weaknesses, owning what I'm not good at, uh, getting over being self-conscious and any self-loathing that comes with that to focus on getting the job done. And some of that might become maybe comes with age, a little bit of maturity to be okay with who you are or who you're not. And then um, ultimately then pivot the attention to finding the talent that's good at what I'm not good at and to convince them to work with me together as a team to ultimately work for the betterment of the organization. That's on a very personal level. And then certainly at an organizational level, I would say um, continuing to bring in the talent, not just developing the talent, but elevating them to a point where they're not just in, uh, capable individual contributors, but also transforming them into effective managers so that they can develop the next generation and the next generation. I um, feel very blessed that I'm able to recruit good people, good contributors into my organization. We are constantly bringing folks in, talent in, and it's not just a once and done effort. I think that's something I've also learned along the way you bring the good people in they deliver the results and then now it's going to be how do you then elevate them into effective leaders so that they could create that multiplier effect from an organizational talent perspective i like that you brought that up in understanding your deficiencies because i think i mean that's certainly um a trait that good leaders have i always uh, like to think of it as like knowing your blind spots but you moved from the private sector into a very high profile organization, Department of Justice, and you're looking to influence um, at pretty large scale. Where do you pull in the confidence to be able to do that, right? You move from one role to another. And as you advance, a lot of people will get into a role and say, oh, I, 
like I, I need certain skills. Where does that confidence come from? Or at least what have you found? For me, uh, it's been a lot of things. I would say having good mentors uh, with me to help me and coach me through some of the more difficult moments. Um, and when I came in, this is now 13 years ago, I started off as a GS staff, had to really just roll my sleeves up and understand the business. And I would want to see that. And folks that join my organization now, is, for me, that's a way of sort of getting getting humble and knowing what I know, what I don't know, and learning about the mission. And ultimately, it's also about, for me at least, it's about working with my component customers, our component offices, the U.S. attorneys, the DEAs of the world to understand what challenges they're encountering and really just try to uh, be a student of their world so that I'm not just approaching them with, well, the department says, or the White House says, or, you know, the OMB says you need to do this, but really understand the context in which how the federal mandates are required to help uh, strengthen our government cybersecurity posture, but at the same time, understand what the local offices might be challenged with and ultimately work side by side with them to figure out how do we comply with the federal mandates, but ultimately still enable these folks to conduct their missions effectively. It, it makes total sense. One one of the things that I think on is because we were just having this conversation in, in my my day job at SoCure, we just went through the process of um, and just accomplished getting FedRAMP in process. But we we had the conversation around and I've done this at multiple organizations where the, the only thing that really gives you confidence is when you have the battle scars that kind of give you that confidence, yeah. right? So so we're going through that <laughs> yeah. process and we joke around about the scars and bruises that we got along the way, but that's what gives you the confidence to be able to tackle the next thing and the next thing. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Battle scars, foxholes, a lot of uh, analogies along those lines. Yes, <laughs> absolutely spot and I think those, I, I love getting my hands dirty. Um, I, I think it's important to really understand the inner workings, like you said, to get those battle scars so that um, you can do better next time. I, I cannot agree with you more. Well said. So tell me this. I mean, a day in the life, what's it like being a digital leader at such a high profile organization? I mean, we, we've talked, we've touched on cybersecurity a lot in this show and, and Department of Justice is is a very high profile. I would imagine that that's a big part of what you're doing, but what are some of those challenges and, and what's it really like to be a digital leader at an organization like Department of Justice? Uh, I, to, I would say, simply it is nonstop. It truly is 24 by seven and then stop. Um, in my position, I have responsibility over policy, complying with federal regulations, and operations, enabling the missions with 24 by 7 IT support. And uh, what is so impressive for me, again, is that it's 24 by 7 for many of those people around me, not because they have to, but because they want to. I would say that as a digital leader in the Department of Justice, for me, one of the ways I try to build trust at the department level is through transparent transparency, establishing transparency. With transparency comes, of course, scrutiny for better or for worse. Everything we do in my office at the department level has eyes on it. Even the most benign, well-intentioned action could produce unintended consequences. And I've learned that through scar tissues as well. 
um, it is more difficult for my office to experiment or pilot a new technology or a capability. When local offices try a new product or a new technology, they could stand it up quickly, they could fail quickly, and most importantly, they can fail quietly. For me, at the department level, we first have to have to socialize any experimental ideas, innovative ideas, to make sure that we're working on things our components, our constituents, and department leadership want us to do. That could take a minute. And then when we actually go about with our pilot, with our experiment, and if it does not work as intended, the failure is totally out in the open, not behind any curtains. I can't hide. But Brian, I've come to be okay with that because over time I have realized that in the end, it is the transparency, the successes and the failures that allows me to build trust with my component constituents and with my leadership. And building trust probably is one of the most important things for me to do in this office, of course, along with establishing competency and hopefully achieving excellence along the way. I think that's great. I'm I'm really curious to know because there's so many different pieces that go into your role, right? You have to be uh, exceptional in a lot of different areas. When you were in your role in the private sector and you were engaging with with CIOs from the outside, and now being on the inside, being a CIO in these positions, how have you seen the evolution of what a CIO has to do and the impact they can have in an organization? How have you seen that evolution happen? Um, across that entire spectrum? Uh, I would say way back, back in the 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, IT, it's sort of uh, relegated to the back office. And uh, I don't mean to sound pejorative, but a lot of times it's being viewed as, um, you know, the IT nerds. And even I think Saturday Night Live have spoofs of IT support. It's very much... Um, sort of um, in a support function behind the scenes, it needs to work. And while today things still need to work, they need to work all the time. They have to be elegant. They have to maximize that customer experience. And uh, with the CIO today, the responsibility is not just limited to IT widgets, but it's about marketing. It is about money management, how to avoid taking on that IT debt. It is also about marketing and selling. How do you sell to leadership the importance of what you're about to do? How do you sell to your uh, constituents on the importance of this modernization or integration project you're about to take on? I would say the CIO today has to be good at many, many different facets, functional areas, whereas once upon a time, the role probably, I would say, is much more limited. IT and the devices, are they're just so ubiquitous today. Once I remember when I first joined the department, you get a desktop and that's about it. And you might get a BlackBerry phone. This is way back, right? You might get it, you might not. Um, but today, everybody does not show up for work until a laptop is provisioned and a phone is provisioned. And then access to different applications are in provision from there. It's just sort of then the, the layers of IT gets built up and gets more complex from there. So it's a much more complicated world that involves HR, IT, organization management, financial management, all of that is inclusive in what a CIO needs to be focused on today versus I would say 10, 15, even you know, 20 years ago when it's a that, much different world. 
that's really well put. And and you're right. It's absolutely more complex, but you used a word in there too, that I really liked is it has to be elegant too. There's, there's that expectation of not only does it has have to work and have that proper engine, but I, I need to interact with it, whether it's on the employee side or whatever your stakeholders are, right? Cause you're in stakeholder, your stakeholders yep. are internal and external. It's not just a matter of like throwing up a website and it doesn't really matter what it looks like anymore, but no, those expectations are changing. And I think, Oftentimes yeah. that CX conversation really gets pushed to some of the more publicly facing organizations, right? Like, um, I don't know, uh, your DMVs, right? At the state level, or if you're at the federal right. level, like IRS, et cetera, you think about right. CX. Yeah. But when you, within yeah. DOJ, I think that's a really good call out. Even what you're doing, it still has to be elegant from the inside out. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we're people inside the organization too. You don't get a buy, you know, giving essentially a less than uh, a less than perfect experience. And that's one of the things that we're really trying to go through with each new solution we're trying to roll out or enhancement. It should be one of the things I'm actively working on with our folks is a new a um, a new look to our uh, customer IT service portal. So when you land on that page, how does that page look? Does it have enough white spaces? Is it intuitive? Our eyes read from left to right, top to bottom. Is the information or the selection button presented that way? Do you have the right word choices in there as in type here for to search your item or do you have something like the word none in that search box, which is not intuitive for the end user? So it gets down to the nitty gritty details, but every bit of that matters. You need to really start from that level of detail to ultimately get to that very clean and streamlined user experience. Sim simplicity is complicated. How's that? No, it makes total sense. And I, I'm really curious to know, because you've, you've talked about the complexities that go into this. Um, when you first got there, tell me a little bit about what you, what you really uh, received and what you found at the organization. And then what has your strategy been to modernize the agency? You talked about how you, now you're provisioning laptops and phones immediately, whereas before you get a computer and maybe you had a BlackBerry, um, which I will tell you, I, I miss Blackberries a lot, but um, that's neither I here know. nor there. Yeah. I, I love Blackberries. Yeah. I'm probably one, you and I are probably the only ones. Um, but what has your strategy really looked like in terms of modernization at DOJ? I would say that has really evolved over time. I've been with Justice for 13 years. I didn't start off in, I didn't come in as the CIO. I know many of the other cabinet level agencies, they have brought CIOs in from the outside. I started off working as a staff member in the CIO's office and then worked my way around and up from there. And I would say for me, at least what's been um, really interesting of late is watching the transformations happen and being a part of that transformation and or leading. So I've been involved in all various um, uh, I, I've in, in various forms. And what I mean by that is at Justice, we are still a very federated agencies. We have about 40 plus or so component offices is how we refer to them. Um, we have the large ones like the DEAs and the FBI's of the world, and we have the more medium-sized ones like the criminal divisions and the civil divisions. So their needs are all very different. I um, don't and can't come in necessarily say, I'm gonna just you know wipe the slate clean and y'all are gonna come and do this this way. That's not going to help me win friends and mm -hmm. um, I gain trust, right? It is really looking about opportunities 
And sometimes it is about coming upon those opportunities to see, oh, this process may not be as elegant as it should be. It started off one way 10 years ago when all these offices are leveraging different uh, disparate systems, but we are not there anymore. We are more consolidated, more unified. How sure. do we streamline the processes to uh, get more uh, effective use out of the information system. So I would say it's really more about process improvement, less so about what's shiny and new, but rather how do we make the user experience better for the workers, for the employees, for the contractors, so that ultimately we can support the mission better. I like that you talked about evolving because one of the things that I started thinking about was it also factors in change management, right? That's something that you have to think about. Yeah. You can you can have all the best intentions, all the best technologies, all the best processes, but, but if you don't really become intentional around change management, that's something that it, it's going to make everything else sort of null and void. So that evolution is so important. I'm actually, one of the things that I was thinking about, I'm, I'm actually really curious to get your opinion on this is I have this hypothesis that during during covid so obviously pre covid there was a there was some focus on change management but you really had to be intentional right to to drive change and then covid happened and you didn't have to be as focused because there was necessity things like zoom or other digital tools that you couldn't do your job without um you were forced to not only adopt but learn in a very meaningful way and now that we're getting back into uh, into a post-COVID world, th that change management intentionality has to be there because the necessity around adopting these digital tools maybe wasn't what it used to be. I'm curious to know what your response is to something like that. Um, so for me personally, one of the things I've come to um, uh, focus on, and it's partly because of my own personal life, I think just with how IT has become so ubiquitous in all of our personal lives, right? Our, our TVs are smart. We, are, we all have phones, sometimes multiple phones. There are basic household items that are now just smart devices in different forms. And I think being able to really appreciate and take a taking a moment to appreciate what's happening around us as individuals, as human beings in our daily lives, I want to bring that same uh, experience to the workplace. Just because one has to log into an application to do the job doesn't mean it has to be a torturous, painful experience. Cybersecurity should be happening quietly in the background. It should not be a mountain for the user to climb and overcome. Um, one of the things that I've shared with uh, our folks as we're going through these various upgrades, transformations, modernizations, uh, efforts is Think about, you know, dare I even say, um, you know, the, uh, I, I will just avoid brand names altogether. There are <laughs> providers out there that you pick up a phone and it's very elegant. The setup is intuitive. It prompts you step by step. The user doesn't have to think, doesn't have to figure out what do I do next. The design takes the user through the A to Z and we need to be doing that as well i call that like turbo tax design right yes exactly yeah. yeah absolutely be simple and intuitive and user-friendly like this should be a pleasant experience like you should not log into that application and come out sort of like hating it so and no, that matters sense. and i think that's still a little bit of a cultural transformation for those that may have been in it for a minute it's like well it works 
yes, it works, but it's ugly and it's unpleasant. Um, it might sound trite, but I do think all that matters. No, absolutely. And and you brought up cybersecurity and it's sort of kind of that foundational piece of it. It has to be there. One of the one of the big buzzwords or buzz phrases over the past couple of years has been zero trust. And I would imagine that's something that's top of mind for you. I'm curious, what's been your approach to implementing the the zero trust framework within uh, justice? So Brian, I would ground that question with the problem statement. And that problem statement is ultimately about securing our information resources from increasingly sophisticated cyber attacks. Uh, zero trust, there's zero trust framework. In our case, we don't see it as just a buzz term or solution looking for a problem. The problem is very real. Specifically within the justice department, you mentioned earlier, we're a high value target, spot on. I cannot agree with you more. And it does keep myself and many of us awake at night. Um, how do we stave off persistent threat campaigns in this complex distributed environment um, while we continue to support the mission workflows? How do we prevent unauthorized access? How do we prevent the unauthorized access while enabling access for the verified users and make sure that they have the right level of authorization? Not everybody has to or should be granted access to see everything just because they're a part of the organization. And for justice, we, over the last 10 plus years, we really have been building out a defense in depth security architecture that um, ultimately contains elements of the foundational structure to our shift to zero trust. Um, and they uh, include building blocks such as knowing what assets are in our environment. That's the asset inventory piece that is so critical to a cybersecurity program, knowing who has access to your information resources, and then ultimately bringing those two together to truly achieve that zero, tr zero trust construct to make sure that the right asset, that right managed asset with the right security state is allowed to access an information system that's being used by an authorized user with the right level of permission. We've been doing this for over a decade. Zero trust might be the term of art of today, but the reality is we have been working on these foundational elements and modernizing the technology we've been using for these foundational elements to continue to evolve and get to that higher state of zero trust. It makes makes sense. And one of the things that I think about it, I've heard several cyber leaders uh, talk about the, the mentality that goes into the uh, kind of a cyber posture. And one of those one of those components is really feeling and, and acting like the bad actors are already within your walls. Right. And, and operating that way. Would you agree with a statement like that? Yes. Yes. That is the spot on. It's, it's painful to think about. But yes, I would agree with that statement. Why is that so important? I think it's just it that it's a mindset to not never be to never rest on your laurels. Well, and to to bring it full circle, I think what what you as a leader within justice are are looking for are partners that are willing to share that responsibility, right? They're not just saying, "Hey, we see your zero trust architecture, you should take this this solution and you should implement it and then moving on to the next thing," but they're they're taking responsibility and sharing in that that challenge that you have and that responsibility yeah. that you have to keep things secure and locked down and 
and sort of helping you sleep at night a little bit. A little bit, yes, absolutely. And it still goes back to operations. I remember about a month ago, we encountered a situation where we were not able to authenticate into applications. This was on a rainy Saturday morning, and we all got on the uh, 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 troubleshooting bridge, and the vendor was on with us, and the vendor was able to share with us, we can see this happen, we can see that didn't happen. And that allowed us to quickly hone in on where the potential uh, gap or wherever the problem area was so that we can then pursue that next you know, thread. So that's a perfect example where the vendor was in the foxhole with us. We all, you know, like I said, got up Saturday morning, we're on the bridge and trying to figure out what happened. And uh, it wasn't the vendor, but they helped us identify where to um, go to ultimately resolve the issue. So before we get into our final five questions, I have, I have one more I want to ask. You've given great advice to the vendor community on on best ways to engage and and do meaningful work there. But I'm curious to get some advice from you to some of the younger leaders out there, women leaders, new leaders in tech. What would you say to them, um, some of the things that you've learned across your career that would be uh, really important for them to know and understand? Sure. Um, I'd say a couple of things that I've uh, carried with me throughout my career, and a lot of them I um, picked up uh, actually in my private industry days that are still very applicable today. I'll start with relationship management. I've said this uh, uh, in other uh, briefings before where it's so important to establish those relationships and to talk to your customers when things are good. I still have customers today, Brian, just because I'm not in marketing, I'm not in private industry doing the business development. My customers are the component offices that make up the Department of Justice. I provide infrastructure, IT support to these folks. They pay a tax into my office. So I have an obligation to make sure that I deliver the best service to these folks and where they do have uh, grievances, I need to hear them out and I need to be proactive, take action and fix those issues. Um, so going back to relationship management, knowing your customer, knowing why you're there, what you're doing to serve your customers and doing your job well. I'd say second thing is knowing how to le read a legal document. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I work for the Department of Justice, <laughs> but it goes knowing the writing that's on paper. They're usually not that difficult to read, but it's about taking the time to understand, to read what's there, to read the statutory requirements, to know what you're required to do versus maybe something that's optional or something that is up to interpretation. That all matters in ultimately helping an executive decide which path to take, what to do to solve for a particular problem. A um, couple of other quick things, I would say understanding the macro environment, know the context, understand the environment within which you're operating, something that's very relevant even in the cybersecurity days, you need to know the architectural framework, you need to know what's connected to what to really know uh, how to potentially investigate a, a suspicious activity or understand the impact of what you might want to do, whether for, whether it's for cybersecurity or modernization, the good or bad impacts, so you need to be aware of that. Um, how to overcome objections. And by the way, I, have, I, I swear to God, I'm gonna come to the end here. How to overcome objections. Um, getting a no is okay. Um, how do you find a way to turn that no into a yes? Again, it sounds maybe itchy, but it's something that I remember learning in graduate school in one of my first jobs, actually, at Procter & Gamble, was they had a whole workshop on how to overcome objections, figuring out what 
your customer is saying no to. Sometimes they'll say no. You might think it's because of issue A, when in fact it's because of issue B. So you need to take a moment and find out and ask the questions about what is it about this that you don't like or that you're saying no to, to really understand the root of the problem. And then I would say results, results, results. Um, I cannot emphasize results enough. We all are in many meetings in a given day, uh, but let's not just meet for meeting's sake. Every meeting should lead to a productive outcome. So uh, just keep your eye on the prize on results. Make sure you focus on as you're going into meetings, as you're producing products, what results is that deliver what result is that delivering for the organization how is your result making the organization a better place so all, all really good advice a, yeah <laughs> I, well, I, I know that was probably you probably didn't expect me to just sort of bore about all that but um i think those, all those things i i run into every day in terms of uh, uh whether it's meetings discussions they're all still very uh relevant and applicable to i would say probably all industries not just federal government it makes total sense. And when you said the 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 getting past no, it made me think of a, a book that I read in the past few months. Um, I, ironically, he he worked for the FBI, Chris Voss. He was a F, FBI hostage negotiator. In fact, one of the best negotiators in the world. Um, his book was Never Split the Difference. And he talks about everybody wanting to try and get to yes, but really you yeah. should be trying to get to know and building from there because you're going to learn so much about what's important to them, et cetera. So um, I think the yeah. the not taking no for an answer and getting past it is so important and being willing to get into the conversation or get it, get into the situation where there will be a no, embrace that no yeah. so you can start building on top of it. So no, all all great advice. Um, and yeah. and with that, I want I want to bring us into our final five questions. Um, I'm excited to get some of these answers from you. Uh, the first question is, what is the best advice you've ever gotten? Best advice is to move forward, move past the negativity. I learned this from my former boss and mentor, Kevin Dealey. May he rest in peace. I remember when I first joined the department, um, he was a good mentor. And I remember I would always share with him who wronged me for that day. And he would always tell me to move forward. Uh, keep your eyes on what needs to be done, get the results, and move past it. It was really hard to do, I think, because our human nature is such that we want to wallow in our complaints and how this person, you know, did bad things to us, and they're just so wrong. And uh, it took me a minute to learn that new behavior, but I find that it is a super thing to, uh, important thing to master, and I Tell everybody, anybody who would listen, spend a minute to listen to me, which is to learn the ability to move past any negativity, any any discord, but just focus on getting the results. That's a great one. What about the worst advice you've ever gotten? Um, when people say there's no such thing as a dumb question, I disagree. <laughs> um, I think questions that do not lead to open-minded thinking or and or solving the problem, well, that those questions are just unnecessary. Questions that show that you have come into that conversation unprepared, not having done basic due diligence. Well, they're not great, but I'm glad that you're at least engaged enough to ask what you should have known. Um, thoughtful questions are not dumb. Questions intended to help to get at the root of the problem so that the problem can be solved are not dumb. So. 
I guess at a very personal level, I would judge you based on whether your question is thoughtful and or productive slash helpful. How's that? I, I think it's good, but I, I'm hoping now I'm thinking, I'm hoping there weren't any dumb questions in, in the, <laughs> the, the past <laughs> no, 45 minutes. No. <laughs> That's um, wait, uh, so let me ask this one. Uh, who is someone in history you would like to have a conversation with? So I, uh, I've always struggled with this question, honestly, how do you pick one? Yeah. Um, first I thought, we just uh, passed the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Um, I could J put JFK himself or his brother, Robert Kennedy, who, um, are, uh, who was the 64th AG and the person after whom our headquarters building is named. But uh, after sort of tr struggling with this, I actually landed on the person or landed on realizing the person does not have to be a public figure. And then all of a sudden became clear to me that the person in history I would like to have a conversation with is my father. He passed when I was only 11. And there were so many things I want to ask him now as an adult that I was obviously not in a position to when I was just a little kid. Um, for example, my father was born in 1920 and grew up during the depression. I can't even begin to imagine what that was like. He told me his parents, grandparents immigrated from Ireland. Which part did they immigrate because of the potato famine or some other reason? My father became orphaned at 11 and was raised by his grandfather in the south side of Chicago. What happened to my grandparents, his parents? I can't, again, I can't imagine what that was like. It could not have been easy to lose your parents during the depression and with all that going on. Um, my father joined the army and fought World War II in Germany. Uh, he came back with some observations and opinions. What did he experience? He then fought in the Korean War. What was that like? After he retired from the military, he worked for CAT. How did he navigate a post-military service career? I think um, individuals back in that generation uh, they have done so many heroic things and overcome such challenges, and yet they've done so quietly and with grace. And it's just one of those things that I didn't appreciate as a young person, but now I wish I had the I had the opportunity to find out. But be that as it may, so that's my answer to your who do I want to speak with in history. I, I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, now I want to have a conversation with your father because that is. <laughs> That is an impressive background, and I, I can only imagine that um, some of the resilience that you've built into your career and to your life um, were even, uh, even if they were um, not straight from him, but I'm sure you learned from his story and the, the resilience that he must have had to make it through those situations and, and to do that. So indirectly kind of capturing that, I would have to imagine it's it's certainly in, in some part to to him even if it is again indirect thank you brian for saying that and even um thinking back about my father as a mom of boys now i think of this 11 year old boy without parents right oh so just a different perspective yeah yeah absolutely but being a parent gives you a lot of different perspective doesn't it <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> yes so so let me ask this what is something that's inspiring you right now uh it's the people, the people that I work with every day. They're smart. They're dedicated. These folks put in the hours, the blood, sweat, and tears because they believe in the mission. I am just honored to be working alongside with so many individuals who are so devoted to the work. That's what inspires me. 
I love it. And and finally, where do you go to self-educate? I mean, we talked earlier about the evolution of the CIO role and the different kind of building blocks that you've taken across your career to improve and get better and, and gain confidence through those scars. Where are some of those areas that you go to to get smarter and to learn and to evolve? I think um, for me, uh, speaking of, you know, I guess countering my earlier point about, you know, uh, the dumb questions is being open enough to ask those questions, to ask the, to hopefully I'd like to think I ask those questions with some critical thinking behind it to find out what you don't know. And for me, it is about digging deep. It's not just stopping at that glossy overview or the sales pitch. I do my due diligence. I read thoughtfully and I ask questions and follow on questions to really help me understand, truly comprehend the matter at hand so that ultimately I could either become more well-informed or be in a better position to solve the problem. No, I, I, I love that one. And I, I've talked about it. I mean, that's, that's usually me too. I mean, I, I like listening to podcasts and I like um, listening to audiobooks or reading, but the, the ways that I learn the best are through conversations uh, similar to this one, but being able to ask people questions and being really naturally yeah. curious. I love to, I love to get some of that information through different points of view. And then I can assimilate that into what I think is right or what I think is wrong. And that's one of my favorite ways to, to educate myself too. Same. Yes. Conversations are important. And actually, um, Brian, sometimes in my position, I get a lot of briefings, folks presenting um, outcome statuses to um, uh, for me to let me know where things are, what projects are. And um, sometimes I have folks ask me, can I just send you the deck? I said, no, I want to have a conversation because in hearing about the briefing, I have an opportunity to ask questions in real time to really probe and really dig deep and understand. So I, I like you, I appreciate the conversation so that it's truly a dialogue so that there's hopefully mutual understanding uh, after the conversation is over. Well, unfortunately, this conversation is over. And I say unfortunately because <laughs> I've enjoyed it immensely. I hope I hope my listeners have. I really appreciate you kind of giving us a glimpse into your world. And, and again, what keeps you up at night? What What's inspiring you? What, what are some of your strategies and approaches to things? It's been really, really enlightening and educational. Um, and I appreciate your time coming on and sharing all that with us today. Absolutely. The pleasure was all mine, Brian. I enjoyed this as well. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.